filibuster receives sponsorship from the Ehrlich Law Office, discrimination, wage, and litigation solutions serving Northern Virginia and the District of Columbia. They handle employment issues including wrongful termination, wage disputes, discrimination, equal employment opportunity matters, and more. They also handle civil rights litigation, defamation, and general litigation. For a free consultation, visit EhrlichLawOffice.com slash filibuster. We're not going to meta podcast, are we? I don't know, are we? No. <laughs> We're not using this as the cold open. No. Nobody wants to hear that. It's true. So, do you guys know the uh, bad astronomer? Does anybody follow the bad astronomer on Twitter or read his s- blog posts on Slate? Uh, Phil Plate, yeah, I used to read yeah. him uh, somewhat religiously. I haven't haven't had a chance to look at his stuff in a little while, though. Do you follow his Instagram at all? I don't. I'm a bad Instagrammer. I'm not on it anywhere near enough. Well, then you thankfully don't know what's coming because all of his posts recently are videos and pictures of the herd of goats that he just acquired. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> so it's just goats jumping on things like him and his wife and I walked. Stumps and... I walked right into it. I had no idea. It was a trap the whole time. <laughs> it was a total there trap. There was Admiral Akbar to warn me it was a trap. <laughs> But they're really cute. If you want actual goat content, don't listen to us. We don't have any actual goat content. Go to Phil Plate, the bad astronomer. Go to his Instagram where there's actual real goats making goat noises and doing goat things. And there's also science there. And there's also really good good science, like debunking the UFO that flew over L.A. a couple nights ago. He shot down a UFO? No, he debunked it. He woke it up? Hey, hey, welcome in. This is Filibuster, the Black and Red United podcast. I am Adam Taylor, as always, being glared at by Ben Bromley. Jason Anderson is also with us. We're all from blackandredunited.com, where you can find us writing about DC United, the U.S. national teams, and lots more. We've got kind of a sad show for you today, Uh, not just because DC United season ended yesterday in New Jersey against the hated Red Bulls, but also because there are World Cup qualifiers coming up, and normally that would be a happy occasion, but with Jurgen Klinsmann, we shall see. Uh, Before we get to anything, though, Jason, what are you drinking tonight? I was muted. Um, I was going to do some kind of beer. Uh, I bought a bunch of beer last night to drink with ice cream uh, to cope. Um, <laughs> a reasonable uh, course of action. As the show got closer, I decided that beer wasn't going to cut it. So I have a, a, a very, very hearty, almost completely full glass of bullet rye uh, that I'm going to drink throughout the show because it's time for bourbon and sadness. Well, it's rye, not bourbon. Close rye enough. and sadness. Whiskey and sadness. Ben, what are you drinking tonight? I'm also participating in the whiskey and sadness motif. Uh, I've got an old-fashioned, because obviously I'm not going to drink that other uh, classic whiskey uh, cocktail that has uh, vermouth in it instead of uh, uh, simple syrup, because that's named after a uh, ridiculous and terrible place. So I'm uh, drinking an old-fashioned tonight because it has whiskey 
and it's whiskey helps my sadness. I may have had too much to drink during the game and immediately afterwards. So I am drinking a beer. I'm drinking a new Belgian snapshot, which is one of their beers I had never heard of before or, or, or seen, but until this weekend, it is a tart wheat beer. Uh, that's, that's not bad. It's got some elements of like, a uh, a Flemish sour ale, but it's it's obviously a bit lighter, being a wheat beer. Uh, but it, all in all, it's pretty good. Uh, I I quite like it. I had that recently. It is tart. You're right, especially for like a large brewery beer. Yeah, that doesn't that doesn't upfront up say like this is going to be tart or sour, um, but not in a bad way. Well, it uh, does. It uh, the snapshot does say tart wheat beer is how it's labeled. Oh, okay. I only saw it on the menu. Okay, yeah. They they're straight up. In on the bottle saying this is we we okay. used a souring process. Okay. Beer. I mean uh, it's there, um, and it's definitely it's definitely um, a lot better than most wheat beers are kind of, especially at this time of year they're just kind of there they don't feel like they can hold up to the conditions or the weather or yeah. the food that you might eat at this time of year this is a little different. Yeah, exactly, and that's that's what I was looking for, and I was uh, glad to find it in New Belgium, which. Some of their beers I find to be a little bit overrated. They're they're a fine brewery and they've done a great job, but but some of their beers I feel like um, kind of get get rated highly because they're from New Belgium, not on their own merits. Right. Uh, but but this beer I I like I said I quite enjoy, so I'm I'm glad I found it. We we have to talk about soccer now. We do. I apologize. We, we don't actually. Uh... We we have free will. We can do whatever we want. No, actually, this is this is preordained that on this this drinking podcast with a soccer problem, we will talk about soccer. It's it's right Fili- there. filibuster the John Calvin podcast. <laughs> Something like that. Yes. Yeah. Predestination. It is in our show. DC United's 2015 season is over after the team's second consecutive Eastern Conference semifinal elimination at the hands of the New York Red Bulls. They lost Sunday 1-0 up in New Jersey on Bradley Wright Phillips stoppage time tap-in series. They dropped two goals to nil uh, over two legs. In the second leg, they basically came out with no tactical changes from from the first leg at RFK, which they also lost one to nothing. Uh, also, from a relatively late goal, um, they came, came the team came out set up to try to stop the Red Bulls' attack and, and nick a goal on the counter. Ben, was that the right call? Do you think, or should United have come out with a little bit more of a positive posture in this one? I mean, given what was available due to injuries and signings and so forth, it was really the only option. I mean, Michael Farfan was not even 45 minutes fit, so he was about the only option that could really have changed the way that DC United set up, and he wasn't going to be able to give basically anything. So given what was available to Ben Olsen at the time, I mean, it was the only solution to go with. And especially after halftime, it looked a little better. It looked somewhat threatening. I think DC United was the better team for, I don't know, maybe 50 minutes of the 90 minutes, but their finishing was atrocious and abominable and couldn't put anything on net to the delightful glee of the Twitter commentariat across MLS. 
And, um, yeah, so the only other option would have been to put in Connor Doyle or Miguel Aguilar and then that make that have Rolf up top, but that's if you're seriously talking about Connor Doyle starting a Eastern Conference semifinal, you already know what kind of position you're in. I think that's right, and I I would have liked to see Rolf up top uh, rather than Sabo to start the game. But if one, once the decision's made that that we're going direct, Saboria is really a guy whose name has uh, to be on the team. Although I guess I guess the other option could have been you could have started Hira Arrieta and see if he could have recaptured that early season. Right, but I don't think that was ever going to happen. So no. it was, was going to be, do you put Aguilar in to start for the first time in months uh, so you can have your best pairing up top, or do you have Saborio up top because he gives you potentially the best tactical look against against the Red Bulls? Ben Olsen went with Saborio. A um, couple of chances that we probably could have converted that, that header he had in the first First match, uh, the first leg absolutely should have been converted, and then it's a different series. But here we are, season's over. So, uh, Jason, what do you think? Was it was it the right call to come out with the same kind of basic posture, or would you have liked to see more of a change? I know you guys, after I got dropped last week, talked about more tactical changes that you'd like to see beyond just the posture, but actually changing the system and the the formation. Do you think that that would have been a better option? Uh, I mean, with the personnel available, I don't know that changing the formation was on the table for this game. Um, but I do think United needed to be a little more positive in the early going. Um, they really should have been finished off uh, in the, what was it, 90 seconds into the game with the mm-hmm. um, the short corner that New York has done a thousand times and then DC did not see coming for reasons unknown. Um, and Grella hit the bar. That really should have ended it right there. Um, you know, I think United need to be more positive in the first 15 minutes to give the Red Bulls something to think about, um, to give them a reason to not just press and press and press. And instead, in a game where United had to score and had to win, um, the first 30 minutes were essentially a offense versus defense drill in DC's end. Um, it did get a little better after that. Uh, Fabian Espindola was finding some spaces uh in behind both fullbacks near midfield, he would just pull out almost as a fifth midfielder um, and then get the ball and not even keep it. He would just immediately look to swing it to to somebody else. Um, That started to open things up a little for DC, but it never really, it wasn't, that by itself wasn't enough to to slow the Red Bulls down and to make them a little nervous, give them a reason to to not just assume this was going to go like every other game. Um, The long ball strategy did for the second game in a row, win the narrow battle of defusing the Red Bulls a little bit by making them a little less able to press forever um, and just press the ball all the way into your goal, essentially. Um, That was off the table with playing long ball. The problem is that, again, winning a very narrow strategic uh, idea doesn't win a soccer game. It just means that you're not going to – their plan A didn't work, to their credit, the Red Bulls had a plan B that they seemed very comfortable for the most part with playing. Um, I think they were ready this time at RFK. They might have been caught a little off guard, but this time around they knew it was coming. They were not really nervous about it. There wasn't um, much confusion in the ranks. Um, so I, I think from a broad perspective, the long ball strategy was designed to basically keep it 
keep it 0-0 and then just basically hope for a goal to sort of materialize out of nothing. Um, we almost got a couple... There were a couple... There were, you know, I, I know that the, the talk during the game, especially the further away from DC you got, the talk during the game stopped being about the game itself and just started being about the shots on goal figure, which drove me nuts because it got it sort of reached a crescendo right when DC was creating their best chances. Um, there was like a 10-minute span in real time where two or three of DC's best looks the entire series happened, and people were like, no shots on goal, that, that's all I have to say, but I'm just going to say it in the most outrageous way I can. Um, people that should know better were saying it. Um, and it kind of drove me up a wall because you, you see there was the chance with um, Rolf uh, having a, a half-volley attempt that he just never squared his body on frame. That's the kind of goal that Rolf has been scoring this year. Um, and that was one of those where you kind of knew that if if, you, if DC is going to win, it's going to be a high – it's either going to be a set-piece goal or a high degree of difficulty goal. This was the latter, and it's one of those that, that – it's kind of unfair to say, oh, Rolf should have finished that, but that's what he's been doing this year. Um, and it was an inch-perfect cross. It really was a great setup, and it was just – this is part of the problem with having a strategy that relies on – high degree of difficulty goals as your way of scoring is that sometimes it's too difficult. Um, so I, I, I just, I wonder if giving the Red Bulls something to worry about early might not have given them just enough confusion in their ranks to, to throw them off their stride because they're, they're a team that gets going and then you don't really slow them down other than by, you know, playing long ball that United isn't really very good at playing. Um, and certainly not good against a team that is otherwise throwing so many numbers forward that uh, the midfield ends up being too deep to support a long ball strategy. And so Sabrio knocks the ball down, and if Espindola can't get to it, no one's getting to it because no one's there. Um, if De Leon and Rolf have to stay you know, 15, 20 yards further back than they would uh, against a team that doesn't press, those, those that space is exactly what keeps them from getting to those knockdowns. And so a lot of the knockdowns just ended up being Dax McCarty picks up the ball and recirculates it and New York's back on the attack again. Um, so I think from an, from the early moments, they needed to do something different, but um, beyond a, a, a wild throw of the dice, you know, saying, okay, fine, we're going to bring in uh, Facundo Coria as a 10 and just not have a defensive presence in that, that second central midfield role, um, which we know isn't about to happen because Coria – to get away with that, Correa would have to be Javier Morales-level player, and he's not. We've seen that. Um, and without that option, you there's not too many other things you can do. I do think United should have been more positive at the start just to change the tenor of the game, though. So we've talked about caveats with the available personnel uh, for Sunday. How big of a story should injuries be? When we look back at this game, we had Pontius out, obviously, right as he had rounded into form uh, and, and actually won Black and Red United's Player of the Month for October. Uh, Sean Franklin was out, which meant Steve Birnbaum was starting out wide, which meant even if we did get numbers forward, we didn't have as much of an attacking presence in that, that right fullback spot. Uh, Michael Farfan was out, even had we wanted to put Colin Martin in. He's coming off of injuries and uh, about with mono, so it's not like he was 100% either. Um, the same time for the Red Bulls, uh, Damien Perrinel was out, their best center back. So 
I think injuries probably hit DC United a lot harder than they hit the Red Bulls, Ben. But should they be a story for this game when we look back on it, the way we look back at the the loss to Houston in 2012 and think about all the people who were out for that game, and yet it still came down to Juan Guzman being a coward and not giving a red card? I mean, for this game, no. Injuries shouldn't be... A, a big talking point. I mean, yes, Sean Franklin is the main one that uh, Sean Franklin doesn't get injured that much. So him being out was a noticeable loss, but we, we should be, we should have learned and the, the team should have learned by now that Chris Pontius is not a player that you can count on week in and week out. He just gets injured and it. Some of it's not his fault, but it just happened, and you need more wing depth when you have a player like Chris Pontius, and we've known this for years now, since 2013, and the fact that their wing depth was so poor this year is a problem. But you can't blame you can't blame that on the injuries necessarily, because you know injuries to Pontius are, hap- are coming. You have to blame that on the construction of the team. And other than that, I mean... Yeah, like Colin Martin was never going to play a big part this year. Uh, yes, Birnbaum played. Birnbaum had to play wide, but Kofi Opare did a serviceable job. Uh, and yeah, I, I just don't. It's definitely not like 2012 where injuries were a major talking point because Augusto was starting. Oh, Rafael Augusto, you beautiful I, little I, snowfa- snowflake. I, I recently told our friends at Dynamo Theory that I hope the ghost of Rafael Augusto haunts their stadium forever. Even though he's not dead, uh, I still hope that he is a ghost instead of a person, and he haunts the stadium all the time. That's completely fair. I also yeah. got I also got yelled at on Twitter by uh, Andre Hano's wife for saying that I wish him <laughs> failure in anything that he does. <laughs> recently, like a couple of weeks ago. That is someone who did not realize that she married a professional athlete. Apparently, yeah. uh, or did not realize that sports fans we be crazy, we be completely unreasonable. Um, Jason, is it time to fire Olson? <laughs> I don't think that, leaves the camera. I don't think that you can make an argument about that right now because one, you'd have to find somebody who can do more with this roster, who's willing to do what it takes to do more. Um, If you hire a dogmatic coach that says we're going to be attacking no matter what um, with this roster uh, and, and or with new players that United would be able to go out and find, which is to say relying heavily on an international scouting department where Marcus Halstey and Dan Yakovich have to be counted as successful signings in relation to most of the other signings they've made in the last eight years. Um, you're going to end up with a bad soccer team. They may play attractive soccer, but they're going to lose a ton of games. Um, the roster as is isn't talented enough to play the kind of soccer people would love to see. Now, that's not to say that they have to be as conservative uh, as they often are this season. Um, and I think part of that goes to Fabian Espindola's absence being such, such a regular occurrence that the team never really learned to play another way other than when losing early at RFK, they learned to go all out and attack at that point, but that was the only time. Um, so you have to find a coach that's, that's going to be comfortable playing uh, 
more, a more defensive style, which isn't very common, uh, especially now that apparently everyone in MLS is obliged to play um, beautiful soccer at all times, or else people get mad. Um, as if you know, if you're if you're uh, one of the less talented teams in the league uh, in terms of your skill with the ball in any league anywhere on earth, you sort of have to make an adjustment, or you're going to get run over. Um, I I just I don't see the argument right now. Uh, you know, if it would be one thing if United was leaving out great players at the expense of being conservative and fielding an extra defensive midfielder or what have you, but there's no one there that's forcing Olsen's hand. Um, you can argue, and I would argue, that Michael Farfan would have been better as a starter in the middle, um, especially once Davey Arnold was out. Um, but it's not a clear-cut argument. It's not like... And Michael he was hurt for a lot of that time. Right, and it's, it's not like uh, Diego Valeri is being kept out by Marcus Halstey. Um, it's not a situation where the best uh, the best soccer players, or, or at least uh, most of the best soccer players, aren't getting on the field because the tactical plan is written in stone and the players have to fit. You know, it's, it's not a square peg, round hole situation, um, as has happened sometimes in the past, the, the distant past with this team. I remember the square peg, round hole thing came up a lot during the Ronkin and Hudson eras, um, though that was just individual players. Anyway, um, I don't think... Uh, you can make an argument that there's a coach in the league that could have done much better in this season or the last with the roster at hand, with the resources at hand, um, knowing going in that the scouting budget essentially is going to fund trips to college uh, games to scout players for the draft, um, and maybe the occasional um, trip to an NASL or USL game. Um, a lot of coaches, I mean, there's a reason why Caleb Porter interviewed here and did not take the job, and it's a lot of it probably was like, you can't afford to scout well enough for me to do what I want to do, um, which is fine for him, but that doesn't fix the problem here. That that just means that he waits for somebody else to come along and say, hey, look at our deep pockets. Great. Um, good for you. Yeah, I think you their know, team will, some of the technical staff will take one trip abroad this winter. Right, but it's that usually... That will be the extent of it. it it's not going right. to be multiple trips to Colombia or France or wherever. Right. We're, and and that's been how it is, and that's going. It's going to be that way for at least two more seasons uh, until the revenue streams at the new stadium start putting money in. And then even then, you get into whether ownership is then going to actually do anything about that, or if they're just going to wait until a new ownership group can be found. That's a different topic altogether. Yeah, um, at that point we this, can we can start clamoring, but right. Uh, I, I think we're I think we're putting too much onus on the new revenue streams a little bit. I, if people people think it's going to be a magical revival now once the the new revenue streams happen and I I think they could do a little more now than what they're doing to help build towards that instead of Yeah, but at a certain point, like we've seen it for long enough, for enough seasons in a row, where we know it's not going to change. True, of course, I know it's yeah. not, and, it, and, and especially since it's been under multiple ownership groups, it's been under Will Chang by himself, it's well, been under even Chang, Chang's previous partners, and now it's no, been no, under- no. Victor McFarland, that team spent a ton of money. Um, that was the Gallardo, uh, Gonzalo Martinez, Gonzalo Peralta. Oh, that's true. And then, um, and then, and then, his money dried up because the real estate market crashed. Well, his money didn't dry up; his interest dried up because when, once he didn't have 
Poplar Point as yeah. a development paradise. That was it for him because he was in it for Poplar Point real estate wise. He was not in it. The soccer team was a means to an end. Um, yeah. And, you know, I can't really blame the guy for being like, I was never really into this for the soccer team, so I'm out. Um, and when Will Chang was just holding the team up on his own, we knew, you know, he's not going to be able to do it. Yeah. Um, and, and, it's, and it's fairly obvious that Tohir just wants to flip the team. Yeah, I don't know anyone right. who disagrees, anyone on the outside who disagrees with that assessment. Obviously, we haven't asked people, we haven't spoken to people inside the team or inside the ownership about that. But but that's the perception of literally every single person I've talked to outside right. of the 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 structure of the team. And Everyone assumes that Tohir wants to build the stadium and then sell the team. Well, it makes sense. He, he's gonna he'll make a good profit off of that. It's what makes sense business wise. It sucks as a fan of a sports team, but. Right. So hopefully we get someone like I, I, I don't know if, if it would be Ted Leonsis now, but the way Ted Leonsis was when he first bought the caps, really excited, only maybe a little wiser than he was, so we're not signing Yarmir Yager to a ridiculous contract. But but something along, you know, the the same basic passionate really wanting to succeed uh in the league kind of model would be would be nice to have. Right. Uh, and and also the money, also the money. For, first of all, let's not discuss the Yager era caps. I'm, this is already a dark enough show as it is. <laughs> that was a that was a particularly dark time in my hockey life. Um, but to go back to Olson, I, I think Olson is squeezing blood from a stone, um, and it is frustrating because it does look like this team. I, I think maybe 2014 was a slightly better team overall. But the difference between those two is a handful of points, um, and that's it. It's the same outcome at the same stage of the season um, with, you know, there's not going to be a massive roster turnover. Um, there probably does need to be some turnover just because you've got too many players that are in the, on the wrong side of 30. But ultimately, it's going to be difficult to find someone with the right mindset to deal with the roster limitations and not just say, well, and sign some more guys. And that's all I have to say. And well, what about the game on the weekend? Um, between now and then you're going to figure out a way to win that game. Um, and a lot of MLS coaches wouldn't necessarily be cut out for that. I don't think um, a lot of the guy, I don't, I don't know that Jesse Marsh or Caleb Porter would be cut out for it. I think Oscar Freha would actually be perfectly fine with it. He would just change. He would change a lot. Um, but I think he would be comfortable with it. But he, you know, how many other coaches in the league could you say would jump into this situation and given given the resources that the has available to put into its its youth system? I'm not even sure Oscar Preha would would necessarily do well here, just because he's so much of a youth first kind of coach. I was thinking about this, and the only coach with MLS experience. I could think of who would do as good or better a job with this team than Ben Olsen did, given all the constraints that Ben Olsen faces, is Bob Bradley. Which he's the United is not going to be able to afford. Yeah, and he's he's going to uh, Ligue 2 over in France. Uh, right, he wants to, to, and know, he's probably going to win promotion next year, and he's no, going to be and, a really good coach. And, and Bradley, the, even if you could afford his price tag as is, you'd also have to pay a premium because it's clear that Bradley's goal as a coach is to make it in Europe. Um, and that's why he's taking he's taking the hard road. 
Um, I, I don't know if there's entered. an amount of money you could throw at Bob Bradley exactly. to bring him back to MLS right now. Right. I don't think um, there's no, any premium not. to pay because he, the, he wants to be over right. there. He's, a, he's made a principled decision of, I want to make it in the world's best leagues as a coach, which means he can coach in MLS. You know, I mean, look at Bruce Arena's record with the national team and with MLS, and yet remember um, – Right after he was done with the national team, when he talked about trying to find jobs in England, he said, "You know, that would be that's something I should be able to do." The English press was like, "That's ridiculous. He's an American," um, and no one came calling. Um, and Bradley, I think, learned from that and was like, "Okay, if I go to Europe, because and no matter what, he could go 34-0-0 in MLS, win the Open Cup, win the league, win the Supporters Shield, and people in Europe be like, oh, that's MLS. You know, screw you. Uh, that's not an accomplishment.'" But, you know, he goes to um, Stabæk or however it's pronounced in Norwegian, um, and they're also a small-budget club, and he has success, but not, like, won the league. But that, by itself, it being in Europe, even in Norway, a lesser league. Remember, Norway is a league where Cole Grossman, uh, who was going to be sitting at a bench on a bad RSL team, ended up being a starter under Bradley. Um, He did that over there, and it's immediately a different situation altogether. And he realized that. He's a smart guy. So he said, I have to go over there and do it there, and then he'll move up sort of to the French League. <laughs> to um, the French second division. Right, but, you know, obviously in a position, it's a, it's a wealthier club, mm-hmm. and in a position where he can jump up into the French League, and then that's the way you have to do it. Um, but, yeah, you're right. There's no way Bradley's coming back to MLS. There's certainly no way DC United is the team that's going to hire him back because financially they'd be several, several million dollars short. <laughs> um, uh, and, you know, maybe someone like Jason Christ would be interesting, um, but I feel like he would get very frustrated very quickly because he wouldn't have the emotional willingness to tolerate, you know, when you call ownership and say, we need to spend on this, this, and this, they'd be like, who is this again? Yeah, uh, you can't call him dogmatic. Get out of here. He's not a dogmatic coach at all, refusing to adopt long throws despite playing on uh, a, a four-square box of a field at Yankee Stadium. Never once did they they build, try, attempt a long throw, I think, this year. Um, which, you know, whatever you want to say about about style, that's that's a dogmatic approach that he... Yeah, I, I will... The, the one caveat I would enter is that they didn't really have, especially when they weren't starting Poku, there wasn't anyone to throw that ball to. Um, if it's a long, long throw in and you're looking at David Villa and Medi Bellucci... Um, and mixed discord, you're not winning that ball. It's not going to work. Um, but on the other hand, you but could you could create a lot of chaos. Right, and also he had the option of like, oh, I've subbed Poku into this game for the last 20 minutes. Now I'll right. win. Yeah, um, exactly. But yeah, no, you're you're right. Um, Christ I mean, would have. It, it would have been worth trying once over the course of the year, maybe. Right. I'm not saying and, build and, an attack around it the way Philadelphia used to, but but maybe it's worth or, trying once. Right, and, and I would like United is not going to be. Afford Christ, I don't think, because let's assume, let's go ahead and assume that the coaching salary budget is the lowest in the league, just like the budget for every other thing on the team is the lowest in the league, except for payroll, which uh, don't let anyone let up about talking about that because that obviously solves all the problems. Never um, mind that almost none of that is paid by the team, right? Or you know, we're, all the things we've talked about have been off-field things. It's not the salary budget, it's the other stuff. Right. Um, 
I stole hey, article from our own Ryan Kiefer, by the way, on this topic and the the fact that transfer fees are an important part of determining how much a team in, spends on in players. a salary cap league. It means an awful lot. Yeah, um, because it's the thing that's outside what everyone already has. It is how um, you can differentiate yourself, how you right. can play the market. Yeah. Um, and, and oh, I, oh, go I ahead. Thought, then. I thought that soccernomics was gospel and all that is true and good. It turns out that only looks at European leagues and what? only a few European leagues and it's really? a, it's a model that doesn't necessarily what? explain everything. Yeah. My world is shattered. It's it's useful information, it's really interesting, insightful stuff, but it's not uh not gospel. My right. world is shattered. And and I, I think to to bring it up for like the fifth time, I think, um the main thing that concerns me at this point is scouting because we know that the team just doesn't have the money to scout and they don't have a good track record at signing guys. Um, so if you're Jason Christ or whoever it is, or, or let's, let's live in a fantasy world and say that United just straight up poaches a coach from another good MLS team, um, which we, we know is not going to happen. Um, the fact is that that guy's going to have to come in. And I think that there's that Steve Goff article from a couple of years ago where he listed every signing post Emilio that United made from an international league and the longer you read it, the more upset you get because you just realize that, like, 90 to 95% of those signings, it's like a 30-something player pool. It's not, a, it's not a small sample size. They're all just, they're not good signings. The team is bad at evaluating players that are not in MLS or in the college ranks, um, and they don't have the money to do better anyway. So when you throw that all well, together... They, they could at least do different. I mean... I think that's what they've tried to do. They rec- no, I mean, just at this point, you have to pick somebody besides Kurt Morsink to be your one scout if you're only going to have one scout. Well, all right, here's the other side of that. What? Let's say the scouting budget or the, the pay for your scout is what we probably can guess it is. Uh, who's taking that job? Who can afford to take that job? A 25-year-old football manager kid. I don't care. It's just gotta be, you, at this point, you just need different eyes out there. Because obviously, I mean, Kurt Morsink's eyes aren't doing it. I, I mean, he's done a good job in what. Apparently, he's the main scout in the college ranks, and they've done a pretty good job of that. Um, it would be awesome if they could bring in another scout that could go abroad sometime, even just once. Um, but uh, you know, that's the world that you'd have to live in taking that job. You'd have to be. Um, if you're a career NASL coach or a college coach who's finally decided that you've had enough and you want to coach pros, this is maybe a job you're taking. But other than that, um, when people say Olsen should leave, I feel like they're living in kind of a fantasy world um, because you got to be able to produce 50-plus points to keep making the playoffs to keep the attendance where it is because we know what happens when this team has one bad season. Fans don't come back for 18 months. Um, we had an article about that a while back that showed a pattern that follows that, you know, it tends to follow. It takes a year and a half. This year, uh, the first six months of the season weren't well attended. Some of those were, you know, weather-based, you know, the Galaxy game with the 35 degrees and a gale force winds. I don't even know what kind of weather that is, but um, it's like um, Maine weather instead of D.C. (laughs) weather. But, you know, the attendance took a long time this season to be good, and that was after a full year of being good the previous year because people still hadn't come back around. Um, this team kind of has, has to keep making the playoffs just to keep the finances where they are, to keep the attendance where it is. Um, 
So you're kind of stuck. You have to keep succeeding. There's a, it's a high level of pressure to get by with almost nothing. Um, and so the, the job is extremely demanding. And, he, and I don't think anyone here is arguing that Olsen's done a perfect job. We just talked about things that were wrong strategically in the last game. Um, so we're not at all forgiving him uh, for things that, that were mistakes. But you've got to realize that this is, this is probably as tough a job as you're going to find in MLS, probably in all of American soccer. Um, to get this team into the playoffs. And maybe Bruce Arena, if he just decided for for kicks to come back, he might be able to squeeze three or four more points out of this group. Um, but it's not going to be – he's not going to win the supporter shield with this group. Um, Siggy Schmidt isn't going to win the supporter shield with this group because this group probably can't win the supporter shield with anyone coaching them. Um, Jose Mourinho probably wouldn't be able to get this team the supporter shield. Now, granted, today it looks like Mourinho just isn't very good at winning anything. But yeah, he, he, that's, can't uh, Chelsea, he can't get Chelsea into like the top half of the English Premier League at this it, point. I will say it would be kind of hilarious to just hear what he has to say if he just had to coach this team for a year and just watch him slowly lose his mind at all of the things he can't have. <laughs> that book would be um, so much better. That would be the best U.S. soccer book of all time. Oh, yeah, just someone embedded with a Mourinho coach at D.C. United, and Mourinho's yes. like... <laughs> What do you mean, like, coach flights? And, like, oh, my God, Jose, you, you don't have any idea what you've gotten yourself into, do you? What do you mean my stadium has raccoons? Please write your fan fiction and send it to yeah. filibusterpodcast at gmail.com. We will read it on the air if it is anything other than terrible, which and or I promise you it won't be. Yeah. No slash fic. No, 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 slash no, 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 no. No, no slash fic. But, but as long as it's, you know appropriately family-friendly, we will definitely read it on the air. So so write your Mourinho as DC United coach fanfic and send it in. We'll talk about DC United a little bit more later in the show when we get to our Twitter box. Uh, up next, though, we are going to talk about the U.S. men's national team. But, but first, we're going to take a break. Stick around. This is Filibuster, the Black and Red United podcast. Hey, Ben, you know how you're always going on and on about legal advice on this show? Well, and, yeah. And, not, and you never, ever use the term correctly? Well, of course not. I try not to use the term correctly. Right. Our new sponsors, the Ehrlich Law Office, they do use the term correctly all the time. In fact, that is what they do. Oh, so if I actually wanted legal advice, I should probably go to them? Yeah, exactly. If you're in Northern Virginia or the District of Columbia, they handle employment issues, general civil litigation, defamation, lots of stuff. Uh, they have you covered. Jason, I'm sorry, they do not have you covered because you are in Maryland where they are not operating just yet. Uh, fine. So Ehrlich Law Office, it's a, it's really good people. Uh, Josh is their, their main proprietor, Josh Ehrlich. Uh, he's a law school friend of mine. His, one of their, their attorneys, Ben, uh, a lot of our listeners know him from games and, and other places. So guys, for a free consultation, go to ehrlichlawoffice.com slash filibuster. Welcome back to Filibuster, the Black and Red United podcast. We turn our attention now to the 2018 World Cup because it is officially upon us. Uh, the U.S. national team has their first two qualifiers for the 2018 World Cup in Russia uh, this week. And next week, you know, in in the coming days, they'll they'll host Saint Vincent and the Grenadines on Friday night in Saint Louis. That game's at seven on 
ESPN2 and Unimas and Udayan. And, uh, and then they will depart for Trinidad and Tobago for a game Tuesday at 6.30. That game is on BN Sport. No MLS playoffs during uh, this window. It's all international breaks. MLS actually took the week off, which they've done the last few years for the November uh, FIFA window because playoffs, I guess, are, are somewhat more important to have your big players than one of a 34-game season. That's neither here nor there. Uh, we all know there's there's one question on all of our listeners' minds right now when it comes to these World Cup qualifiers, and it, it, it's it's not about Jurgen Klinsmann, no. No, that's, it's, what, no that's what's on everybody's mind. I was going to say it's Bill Hamid. Oh, well, that's also on everybody's mind. Is there any chance that he plays? Or no, is it going no. to be Howard or, or Guzan? There is no chance that he plays. There should be a chance. He should be given the opportunity to win the job in open competition, but he won't because he plays in MLS and not in, at well, Everton or Aston Villa. I, but, or Stanford. I don't even know if it's it's the fact that he plays at in MLS. I think it's the fact that Klinsman is just bad at evaluating talent. All of these things are part and parcel. Um, I, I think Klinsman is just unable to evaluate the players at his disposal, and that is maybe the biggest problem of all with everything, including his deciding that he's never responsible for anything. I mean, yes. I mean, keep going on, keep riffing off of that. The fact that Kyle Beckerman is still called in over Dax McCarty and or Will Trapp and or Perry Kitchen is just laughable. Yeah, and it's not like... Danny Williams... (laughs) <laughs> it's not like Klinsman's afraid of I, I people choose that are... to, I choose to forget Danny Williams. You're just upset because he got to wear the number 10 last time, which was just the most ridiculous <laughs> thing. It's which, just such a symbolic mistake. It is. Uh, it's almost like giving Dax you're, McCarty the number you're 10. You're a defensive midfielder. Let's let's give you the national team's number 10, and but then still ask you to play defensive midfield because that's what you are. Klinsman doesn't care about numbers, apparently. Apparently he likes number 10s being defensive midfielders, because didn't he give uh, Mix Discarude the number 10 at one point? Well, Discarude has asked for it, uh, I think, throughout his career, um, and then ended up playing like wide left for Klinsman and other such places to get back to players that succeeded in Norway and maybe aren't as good <laughs> elsewhere. Uh, it, I, I was going to say it's not as if Klinsman is afraid to give uh, their first call-ups or their first caps in World Cup qualifiers. They're actually two first-timers on on this roster. Matt Miazga and Darlington Nagby are both uh, in their first senior U.S. national team camps. Miazga came through uh, the youth system, and if that name sounds familiar, it's because you're a D.C. United fan listening to this, and I'm sorry, his name's going to come up from time to time. Darlington Nagby, however, uh, is a newly naturalized U.S. citizen, uh, born in Liberia, moved here as a kid, finally a U.S. citizen, uh, and and finally realizing his potential with the Portland Timbers. He's shown flashes for the last few years, but couldn't consistently put it together until really recently. Uh, Jason, his his turning the corner kind of happened when, when Caleb Porter figured out a way to get Nagby on the inside, getting him more touches and, and more central positioning rather than playing on the wing. Do you expect him to play fullback for Jurgen Klinsmann? 
I hope not. I don't know. I at this point I don't know what to expect of him to use in his player use at all. Um, other than he hasn't played a goalkeeper as a field player yet, so at least we know that the goalkeepers will, you know, 75% chance that the goalkeepers are all playing as goalkeepers and not <laughs> asked to play elsewhere. Um, but I think it's abundantly clear in the last few games how much better Nagby is suited for a central role. Um, he he has all of the skill sets, where, the, the skills where you would think this is a winger, this should be a guy who can stay out wide, he can come in, um, he can be your creative hub despite playing wide. He can do all that stuff, but he doesn't have the mentality of a winger. Um, he has the mentality of a number eight. And playing in that role, he's used, he's put all those winger skills into the number eight role and, and put them to good use. His speed um, is an excellent asset because he, he has quick feet, can set himself up to go positive, and then cover 20, 30 yards on the run with the ball. Um, which is a very useful skill to have breaking through layers of the midfield, um, breaking out of a pressure situation. He can sort of dance away from a, a marker and then take off, and then all of a sudden you've got numbers in the attack and you're, you're really putting your opponent on their heels. Um, his dribbling ability frees him up to, to play in traffic. Um, you don't have to pass Nagby the ball and worry about whether he can get out of a crowd. Um, I, I think... The the recent play that he's had with Portland has been, you know, it, it really is. It's not just Nagby's. The knock on him has been that he's played well at times and then gone back to earth. Basically, um, the the last three or four, I, I guess it's what five games since they switched to the four three three. Those games have been excellent, and I think they show that this is where he belongs long term. Um, I did notice during the broadcast of the game last night that. I believe it was John Strong said that um, Nagby was brought in or was going to be called in, uh, but it was known that he was getting called in before the move into the middle. Um, that does cause me some apprehension because Klinsman has clearly uh, shown that he doesn't care where you actually belong on the field, especially if you're a if you're a midfielder, you could end up pretty much anywhere in the midfield. Um, just ask Michael Bradley. Um, Joe Corona. Yeah, Joe Corona, defensive midfielder, or. Um, uh, maybe worst of all, Alejandro Bedoya, um, who has been excellent in other positions and was sent out to uh, a role he'd never played before and then blamed for it going poorly, um, which is just a great way to manage players and get their respect. Um, I love the idea of a Bradley Nagby midfield in front of a six, whether it's um, even even with Beckerman and his, his lower mobility these days because of the fact that that role sort of requires positional discipline. Um, it covers for the fact that he doesn't want to roam around everywhere. Uh, that would require dropping Jermaine Jones, which we... Is fine. Can all, we can all reasonably suspect is not going to happen anytime soon, regardless of how good of an idea it is. Um, and so I do suspect Nagby is going to end up on the wing just because Klinsman has been so frustrating in his evaluation of players' talents and players uh, positionally, where they belong, what role they should have within the system, what the system even is going to be. Um, all of that stuff drives me nuts, and Klinsman's been wait, doing wait. it, so I... Yeah, go ahead. What about what about Darlington Nagby as goalkeeper? We haven't, we haven't seen the field player in goal just yet, and I feel like that's how Mike McGee gets called back in. Yeah, uh, that's what I was thinking. Since he, since he has the, the field player uh, track record of stepping in goal and not getting scored on. Um, 
so until we see if we get if McGee is is on the national team list, then you can reasonably expect that he is now the number one. Um, but until then, I think we're going to be stuck with Nagby playing wide right in a four four two that doesn't know what kind of four four two it wants to be. Um, and we will all just have to wail and gnash our teeth as the as uh. Meanwhile, you know the people that do defend Klinsman will say, "Oh, but he won. It, you know they beat St. Vincent and the Grenadines two nothing. Uh, hooray!" Uh, and that will be justify that will justify all of his decisions in their minds. Yeah, I do and think Nagby Nagby's <laughs> unlikely to start in this game. Uh, yes, in for Miaska, I think they're both being here to get some camp experience. Um, even yes. assuming they're in the 18, they might not even make the 18 for either of these games. But but they're there for camp right now because they're going to be in for Camp Strudel, uh, formerly called Camp Cupcake, in January, um, and and we'll see what, 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 what goes from formerly? there. What's that? What do you mean formerly? It's now Camp Strudel, not no, Camp it's not. Cupcake. I disagree. Okay. I prefer pie. <laughs> I, I, I for, for pie as well. Thank you for for killing the momentum of the show, Ben. I You're appreciate welcome. it. <laughs> that's that's my goal. I now I just don't even have a transition, so I'm just going to say there's no Clint Dempsey on the roster in this one. He's been in in good form for for the national team. Been one of the few uh, actual threats to score uh, for the red, white, and blue. Ben, how do you think Klinsman sets up? the attack in this one who is going to play uh up front and in attacking midfield and is there any chance they would score against a team not called St. Vincent and the Grenadines um <laughs> yeah it's a hard hitting question Ben it is there was uh, a half a second there where I thought I misheard and that you would ask me that question and that's why Ben was not responding. <laughs> that's how long that pause was. It was, it was all my me. own hearing. It was all me. No, um, I think what's going to happen is I think it's going to be, I think a combination of Josie and Bobby Wood might be what happens. Because Jesse Zardes is going to play in the midfield. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Obviously. I mean, he's played in the midfield. Uh, <laughs> Also, Bobby Wood is better than Jesse Zardes, so there's that as well. But is he? Bobby Wood's a weird player to me because he doesn't really look like he's very good, but he keeps producing goals. He's he puzzles me. Um, though I know he's doing well enough in Germany, so maybe it's one of the situations where you just have to set aside the the way a player looks and just look at the the end result, maybe. Right. Um, and At this regard- level competition, surely he should be able to succeed. Both of them should be able to play as forwards and score goals. Right, and and regardless as well, I mean, it's uh, yeah, Bobby Wood should be Bobby Wood is going to play because he's from Germany and is playing well, and I'm sure he's going to be uh, Jurgen Klinsmann's pretty young thing of the moment. So he's definitely getting on the field. He's definitely playing. Um, it's if they're going to play a four a four four two, which they're going to. That's probably the best that's going to happen. Uh, it doesn't suit the players that they have or the uh, particularly well, but uh, that's probably what's going to re- end up happening. Jason, out of the other young guys, uh, who do you think 
has a chance to play, and who would you like to see play? These are guys like Ventura Alvarado, who none of us no, would like to no. see play. Uh, <laughs> DeAndre Yedlin, who is listed as a midfielder, by the way. Oh, of course. Despite well, not being a midfielder. He's going to play holding midfield. That's the midfield he's going to play. That would... Right. I mean, some fullbacks can transition to that pretty well. Philip Lom. He is not that guy. Wait, you're saying he's not Philip Lom? Uh, yes. <laughs> they are roughly the same height. <laughs> Stanford University's Jordan Morris is on this roster. Uh, I mean, looking at... The, the fact that it's St. Vincent and the Grenadines gives you some leeway um, to take a chance on somebody... Um, I also suspect that they are going to, to bunker. I don't know St. Vincent's tactics by any means, um, but I suspect, given watching every other qualifier against uh, very small Caribbean nations, they would be insane not to. Um, and I, I doubt they're insane, so I assume it's going to be a mass defense. Um, someone like Yedlin playing as a right back uh, is a good idea just to give that extra width, that extra speed dynamic um, a little more of an attacking mentality since mentality is one of the many sources of confusion with this team. Um, Miguel Ibarra does interest me. Uh, I don't know that you can necessarily play him uh, and Yedlin on the same side because they both want to stay a little more wide. So play them on either side of a stacked central midfield. It's obvious. What, like seven central midfielders? (laughs) No, sorry, stacked vertical. So Mm -hmm. uh, a 4-1-3-2 with with Zardes wide left and Yedlin <laughs> wide right and no support in the middle. It'll and be great. It'll be the great. wide players. The wide players just yell "Good luck" to the players that are in the middle. <laughs> and that is their support. Well, they they would yell it, but they're so far away they actually have to signal it with right. flags and, and signs. And also, one of your central midfielders is Jermaine Jones, and he is run off to the side because that's what he does sometimes. Good luck, Michael Bradley. <laughs> he has, he has Kyle Beckerman standing in the center circle by himself. Someone help. <laughs> he has run back to RFK Stadium to continue to yell at Mark Geiger. Well, we all want to yell at Mark Geiger. Um, this is but uh, I, w- I would say that the players that interest me beyond Nagby, who I, I do think should be, if the game go- is going well, they should find a way to sub him on um, just to see if he's capable of playing that role. And also because the next qualifier is only a few days later and you're going to, that's a tougher game against Trinidad and Tobago. You need, players like Bradley to be a little more fresh. He should be fine in that time frame, but, you, you know, you might as well give him a rest when you don't need him. Um, but, yeah, Morris uh, is also, because he's been effective in these international games, um, which is kind of shocking because he doesn't, like, he's having to play these international games without exposure to playing professional games. Um, he shouldn't be as effective yet. He should be confused running around the field at this point, um, and he doesn't look confused, so... Um, but that, that all assumes that the, the game goes as it should and that Klinsman doesn't make some mistakes to make this a tougher game than it should be. Um, I mean, we saw Haiti is better than St. Vincent and the Grenadines by all accounts, um, but we saw Haiti cause the U.S. tons of problems in the Gold Cup. Um, so I have my doubts about the scenario, that, you know, the game being such that, you know, that the U.S. can just put in whoever they want. Um, but... Yedlin should be starting, I would say, um, certainly more so than another game of Michael Orozco or Jeff Cameron being used as a right back, which we've seen um, some, for some unknown reason. Um, 
so there there are a lot of options here that Klinsman could put in that would be interesting, and this is the time to give them a chance in this game against probably the weakest team you're going to play until who knows when, um, until the qualifying for 2022 starts, if we're being honest. Um, but, you know, it's Klinsman, so he's probably going to bench all those guys and um, go some other way for some goddamn reason. I don't know. <laughs> So other than Klinsman being Klinsman, Ben, is there anything you're worried about out of these two games? Is there a chance the U.S. craps the bed against St. Vincent and the Grenadines or TNT? I mean, there can't be, right? There just can't be a way that they crap the bed. I mean, unlike all of these other uh, foibles that Jurgen has had recently, if he loses especially both, but even one of those games, you have to let him go after those games. It, it is unacceptable to keep him if he loses any of those games. That said, there's no way he loses them. He's going to win both of these games. It's Trinidad and Tobago and St. Vincent and the Grenadines. Well, the, you I will say the, the U.S.'s history in Trinidad is a lot of like sketchy one-goal wins. Right, um, but it's mostly wins. Yeah, they are wins, but the, the games have never been blowouts, even when the team has been well coached. Um, I'm not. I'm not so saying with a bad coach. Uh, not, and Stephen Stephen Hart is probably sitting down there, uh, rubbing his hands. He's the coach of Trinidad. And he probably thinks this is my chance. This is my chance to actually beat these guys. I mean, yeah, it, it's definitely possible. No, it's it, it can't be possible. They're going <laughs> to win these games. But yes, nobody it, wants it, it to be possible, Ben. But is it right. possible? No, it's not. Even for how bad Jurgen is, the U.S. should, in theory, be good enough that you run out 11 of the United States' best players and they should be able to beat Trinidad and Tobago 98 times out of 100. So, so you're saying that like a Root Hullet coached U.S. national team where the coaching was just put the balls on the ground and say, okay, have fun, guys, um, that team should be able to win. Should be able to beat... St. Vincent and the Grenadines yes. and Trinidad and Tobago? Yes, I am saying that. Should be able to beat yeah. the, now, the, now mid-level, happened... the mid-level teams of CONCACAF? No. The good teams of CONCACAF? Now, what, no. if, what if Now, what if we're talking about a Root Hullet who first makes his players run uh, three marathons and then puts the balls out and says, have fun, guys, and then walks away? Um, do you think that team will even have the legs to play anyone at soccer? Shut up. <laughs> Before we play um, another round of Never Have I Ever, let, let's open up the Twitter box. And Never have I ever run three marathons and then played a U.S. international. Thanks, Ben. Thank you for that. First Twitter box question tonight comes from Filmy Girl on Twitter, at Filmy Girl. Uh, who asks us at filibuster DCU? What are the chances of Oparnbaum 2016? Uh, that is, of course, the nickname for the central defensive combination of Kofi Opari and Stephen Birnbaum. What are the chances that those two guys start together at the beginning of 2016, displacing team captain Bobby Boswell uh, from the position, or otherwise pushing? Otherwise. He's not there. Uh, Boswell did just sign a contract extension. Uh, he is the team captain. Benny loves him. I don't think there's a real strong chance 
for Oparnbaum uh, 2016, at least not in the spring. We'll see how Bobby does and holds up next year. Uh, Jason, what do you think? Uh, very low. Um, not just because Olsen is a fan of Boswell. Uh, neither Opari nor Birnbaum did enough this year to prove that they can take over his role as the leader of the defense. Um, they both still look like guys that need somebody else doing the, the verbal uh, organization side of things. Um, and that alone... I think is what keeps Boswell in the team. I also don't know that Boswell actually really was any worse this year than last year. Um, there are times where he looks bad when he gets pulled out of the middle. Um, but for example, on the goal that New York scored this past uh, or yesterday, I shouldn't this past, it was, it's like barely 24 hours old. Um, <laughs> but the whole reason Boswell ever even is out there is because everyone else is pushed up in desperate search of a goal. Um, and, and, Opare or Birnbaum in that situation probably doesn't really do anything else uh, that Boswell couldn't. They just get maybe one or two steps closer to stopping the play. But they're, you know, we're still talking about a play that's long gone. So one or two steps closer doesn't make a difference. Um, I think until one of those two makes um, a big step up, um, and I was hoping that this year would be Birnbaum making that step up, and instead he sort of was kind of the same player, just with more peaks and valleys, I would say. Um, than in 2014 where he was kind of consistent uh, from when he stepped in. Um, until that point comes, I don't think there's much chance at all the change gets made, and I'm I'm actually okay with it because I don't really think Boswell's the problem unless change the entire style of play and build out of the back more, in which case if you want to make that argument, then you kind of have to get rid of Boswell because he's not going to build out of the back. Um, he is comfortable with stepping into the midfield and occasionally getting involved in a, a buildup, but he's not the kind of guy like a Michael Parkhurst who's going to, to he's not he's not the kind of guy that you want attempting 40 or 50 passes a game, um, and that's part of the reason why United plays long, and that leads to needing a player like Boswell. It's sort of a vicious cycle where if you play long and have less possession, you're going to have to do more defending and more aerial defending, and thus a player like Boswell becomes more and more necessary. Um, so it, just to sum it up, no, I don't think that I don't think it's going to happen next year unless one of those two comes to camp, or basically both of them would have to come to camp and force Olsen to push Boswell out, and that's that doesn't appear to be something that's about to happen. Next question comes from Essie Neri, or Effie Neri, sorry, on Twitter, at Rick Rar, uh, who asks us at Filibuster DCU, was Pontius being out of the lineup the silver lining, the best part of Sunday? Injury-prone makes a reasonable new contract, more palatable. Hashtag party down. Ben, do you think that that there's a silver lining to Pontius's injury at the end of the year, uh, making it less likely both that someone else takes him at any contract number and, and that he leaves DC United? Do you think he'll be back next year and at a lower contract number? Well, th- those are sli- those are two different questions. The first part I'll take is no, I don't think it's a silver lining. I think, regardless of the contract situation, I think everyone would have preferred Pontius to be on the field rather than have him have his contract situation maybe be changed. But um, to the second part, it's very rare that players 
take less money in MLS contracts. It's just, it's, that's the, one of the very few things that the, uh, MLS players union has been able to be really good on for their constituents is that until the very end of players' careers, they've been very good at not taking reduced money. So I don't know what's going to happen with Pontius. Obviously, he is a special case. He's not the typical case, so it could be different. But he's been here so long, I can't – my heart can't see him in a different uniform, but heart is not how business works, so – I know Ben has been uh, Ben Olson has been loyal to players like that in the past, but it I think it may take a special circumstance, and I can I, I don't think he's gonna, he's definitely not going to get taken in the first round of the entry draft where you have right. to a player's option uh, in the second round maybe, but I don't know my 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 gut says somehow he's back with DC United next year. I certainly hope so. One of my my worst fears goes to another team and has a, a career renaissance and and just rekindles, refines his 2012 form for four or five, six years, and and we're left asking, what if? What if we had kept him? What if he sticks around? That said, that's not a great reason to keep a guy around. However, we saw that he can get back to it in October. The, the, the issue is keeping him on the field as it always has been. So hopefully we can get him back at whatever contract number um, and, and he'll do good things for us. Uh, next question comes from Mauricio at Momex 21 on Twitter asks us at filibuster DCU. Spindle's forms seem to dip and his frustration grew towards the end of the campaign. Does DC United keep him? Yes. Spindle will be back. There's no question. I- I also don't I don't agree that his form dipped um, yeah. just because he's not getting goals and assists. I mean, a lot of that was if he puts in a perfect cross for somebody and they don't convert it. That's what is he? What more is he supposed to do? Run in and jump in their way and convert the cross for them? Cross it to um, himself. Yes. Um, Spindola's numbers. Uh, what was it? Five goals and seven assists in like twenty games or something. Um, this whole season. Yeah, um, he he didn't get himself suspended for a fifth of the year, so. Right. So that's a good um, start to 2016 already. Right. Um, I, would say, I would say the problem isn't uh, a spindleless form. I'm not really worried about him at all as long as he's um, not picking up suspensions, which I will say his temper seemed a little more reined in after that last one. Mm-hmm. Um, not not completely restrained, but you know he he wasn't going after the referee. He wasn't going after opponents. It does seem like he made some 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 sort of progress, maybe not a ton, but some. Um, and I also think that this is a situation where United doesn't need to jettison their good attacking players um, because they're already be- kind of behind the eight ball. I think they need to add to a front six that has Rolf and a Spindola. They need to add somebody else attacking that's maybe as good or better than those two rather than also get rid of a Spindola because then you have to replace a Spindola and add the new guy. Um, I think that would be giving the team too much work uh, to do. That I just don't think they'd be able to stay at this level if they, gave, even if they gave themselves, you know, his salary space. I don't think they would use it as efficiently as they're using it now. Next question comes from Michael Spatz on Twitter at Diet Coco. 
Uh, who asks us at filibuster DC? What are some things that the four teams that are still in the playoffs have that DC United doesn't? Um, I'll start off with the scouting budget uh, being one of them, uh, and a transfer budget. They they all paid transfer fees or even loan fees for for players that are are probably outside of of DC United's capacity right now. Although yeah, I mean even the crew have have shelled out money there, but Jason on the field tactically do do any of these do, do these four teams all share something in common that DC United doesn't have uh they have several things that DC doesn't have on and off the field not just a scouting budget um these are teams that have if i'm not mistaken every single one of these teams uh save columbus has the USL uh team uh connected to them uh, yeah, that's that's, an, that's an important uh, an important tool to develop your own players. Uh, Portland, for example, may due to the injury that Jorge Villafania picked up late, they may be playing Taylor Pay at right back uh, to cope if if Villafania is injured through the break and is still not fit. Um, Taylor Pay is going to have to come in at right back, and he coming into the season was a second year player who had no playing time in MLS, and now he's got like ten starts and has not looked out of place, and it's because of the Timbers too. Um, another thing that I would look at is team speed. All four of those teams are significantly faster than United. Dallas obviously is like another, you know, they're, they're a track runner, whereas DC United is a regular human being. Um, but even New York and Portland have more speed. Is um, anyone slower than DC? Is any I don't good, think so. good teams, especially slower than DC I don't United? even know that any of the bad teams are slower. Maybe Houston, maybe Colorado. That's it. All, um, all I was thinking was Colorado. Right. Um, but the, the Rapids, I can't even we, – we don't have the time. To they're, get, they're, to they're, bar- they're barely an MLS team. They're barely a thing. Uh, but anyway. I will um, say Colorado, good beer tonight from New Belgium. Yeah. So that's, no, I mean, that's, beer that's what Colorado has. Um, but, uh, no, speed, uh, the USL thing, uh, that helps a lot. Um, it does seem like those are the kind of clubs that probably have – a little more um, in-house data analysts, uh, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, stuff that, again, costs... I mean, speed doesn't necessarily cost more money. You can find MLS players who are fast for MLS wages. Um, but those teams are healthier franchises uh, as a whole, and it's because of things like the wage budget it is better off the field. Um, they can go out and sign guys that we... Just DC United, not, not even can't sign. It's not even going to bother looking at because they know they can't sign. It's not even worth you know getting out of bed for to to think about that for a day. Um, so in in a lot of ways, off the field, they're they're in better situations. Um, the thing on the field that concerns me is speed, and I will say all four of these teams are willing to take risks going forward that United is definitely not willing to take. Um, Certainly the speed and scouting and all that figure into it, but at a certain point, like I said in the earlier uh, answer uh, with about a spindola, United probably needs to add one more attacking player to the mix, one more attack-minded player who is at a higher level than about half of the front, uh, the front six are. Um, and those teams all have that because they're willing to take that risk. You know, Columbus is willing to deal with Justin Merrim, maybe not defending all that much. Um, FC Dallas uh, was willing to give Michael Barrios time to find his feet, um, and now he he spent pretty much the entire game destroying whoever Seattle lined up at left back. Um, 
uh, across the board. I mean, Portland, no one's ever really questioned um, that Caleb Porter wants to play attacking soccer. He spent most of the season not doing so, or right. at least not not attractive soccer. Um, and then, but then when his back was to the wall, he decided to go all in for a a lineup that almost looked insanely attack minded, and it's paid off completely. Um, so those teams prioritize going forward. Um, more than United does, and that certainly makes them more aesthetically pleasing, and it may also be contributing to better results. But, you know, how much of that is that they're, they have players good enough to do it um, is a different thing. But mostly the things that concern me are team speed and the USL sides. Those would mean a ton to this team. Yeah, that's that a, a great question from, from Michael Spatz. So thanks for sending that in. The next one comes from Josh Weber at Salisbury United who says, let's talk, or says, at Filibuster DC, let's talk about adding the 3-5-2 to our arsenal next year with our three center backs, anchoring the back, Kemp and Franklin as the wing backs. Um, ben, we do have three starting quality center backs in, in Boswell, Birnbaum, and Opare. Is there reason to think that we should move to a three-man back line? No. Um... I'm, I, I will admit that it is it's always tempting to look at look it's at very, that and, and say, yeah, like even with this US national team, I'm thinking, you know what, if we put Yedlin and Johnson at wing back, we could have hell, we could even have Ventura Alvarado out there next to Jeff Cameron and No, what is your mind doing? No. Because it, there's something alluring about a three man back line. For Ventura sport. Alvarado is fool's gold. And I, I, yes, I agree. When I come to my senses, I obviously agree. And I think that's that's what's going into the thinking here is the three man backline, a three five two, hasn't worked in MLS for for seven years now. Uh, nobody's found a way to succeed. The closest was Chelice with Shivas USA. That's the closest anyone's coming to make. Has, anyone well, has come in the last half a decade or more right. to making the three five two work. It, it just, over over weeks uh, on yeah. end, um, yeah, Columbus it, tried it, it a couple times. Yeah, well, Columbus has tried it, um, but it was always a like they used an open cup game as an experiment. Um, that wasn't a let's just play three five two for a couple months and see what happens. Um, that was a we're we're playing a lower level team. Let's give this a shot and see what happens. Um, also, it did, also, and also, it did not work. And also for DC United, if you play a three-five-two and one of those three center backs goes down, you have nobody. Well, you have nobody. You have Marcus yeah. I would I would actually yeah. argue that if United went to a three-five-two, that in the the, the question and the, midfield, and the midfield is also bad. You can't have Taylor Kemp and Sean Franklin as your wing backs well, at a three-five-two. And this is what I'm getting at is that um, the mention of Franklin, I think Franklin in that setup would actually be your right center back. Yeah, he's um, one of the marking backs. He's played there before, and we've seen that a three-five-two requires a little less size for your three center backs and a little more mobility, um, a little more comfort on the ball since your right and left center backs have to be a little further out. Um, fans of the team from the right era can remember Brian Namoff going from playing right back to right center back under Tom Sohn and playing it pretty well. And I think at this point in time, that would be Franklin's first position. And I think... He would probably be able to hold off um, Opare for that spot. I think it, the lineup you'd end up with in this scenario would be Franklin, Boswell, Burnbaum. Well, um, I question whether Boswell would even be out there. No, I, I think he stays in because you need even more organizational ability than before. That's 
Um, you do run the risk of speed being a big problem, though, even with Burnbaum and Franklin on those on those sides. Um, and let's not forget that Kemp has decent speed, but he's not elite uh, in that department. Um, he doesn't even have Corb speed. Nick DeLeon probably ends up at the right on the right side of midfield, and he also doesn't have the speed that that position would normally look for. So United would have to keep the ball a ton. Um, if you remember Sones 3-5-2, that team would uh, hoard possession. They would regularly be 55-57% possession. Um, that is how that worked. It, when it didn't work was when the team couldn't keep the ball, and all of a sudden you were fending off more attacks because the whole thing is in a formation like that with this personnel, you pretty much have to prevent yourself from being attacked very often. Um, you've got to shelter the fact that you're not playing many defenders and that you don't have a lot of speed by just never giving the ball away. And I think it's clear that this roster and under Olsen, this team doesn't prize possession enough to get away with that. They're, it's just not going to function um, with the players involved. Now, if Miguel Aguilar showed a little more development on the defensive side of the ball, you could start looking at moving De Leon into a, one of the central three positions um, and have Aguilar run that wing. But that's a, he's a long way from that point. Um, and we saw some of the decision-making that he still has to learn in the, in this last game um, as far as when to do the attacking stuff that makes him such an enticing player and when to um, play possession and play safe. He still has a long way to go in learning that balance. So adding him in a 3-5-2 on the right would be even more of a risk than playing him on the right of a 4-4-2, and we've already seen that Olsen doesn't really want to do that. Um, so it would take a big effort to overhaul the roster. You'd need a lot. Um, you'd also still need a number 10, which United doesn't really have. Um, Correa doesn't, he's not good enough to justify the tactical risk. Um, I guess the solution at this point with the roster, you'd actually probably be better off playing a 3-4-3 than a 3-5-2 uh, with these players, which 3-4-3 is even more crazy. Yeah. Uh, it would be, uh, um, pretty much people would lose their minds watching that, I think. Yeah, I'd argue that you probably also need to bring back Enzo Concina or or bring in another probably Italian coach who has experience playing a modern three-man backline because the the style of, of three-man backline that we played under Tommy Sohn and even even Peter Novak um, doesn't work in right. the the post-modern era of, right. of soccer that we're and, in right now. It just I, doesn't. It's, it's way add, too out of control. Right, and... Um, if people watched the last World Cup and they saw Chile and they saw them playing a 3-5-2 and it was really a lot of fun, um, a big reason why that was fun is that everyone starting for Chile was super fast. Um, <laughs> and they were starting, you know, their back three consisted of like two career defensive midfielders and a career right back because to play that system requires different, a whole different mindset. Um, and so we're talking about United being like arguably this one of, if not the slowest team in the league. Uh, 3-5-2 at this point, you really need to be a team of um, elite. You need to be one of the fastest teams in the league. Like Vancouver or Dallas has mm-hmm. the speed to, to maybe pull it off, and that's about it. Um, everyone else is a little too slow to make it, make it work the way it probably needs to work nowadays because you need that uh, ability to counter um, and break forward in, in relentless waves. I will say if we were to part ways with Ben Olsen, which I think would be absolutely the wrong thing to do. If we wanted to hire Marcelo Bielsa to come in and <laughs> and entertain us for a little while, there are worse ways 
it to would go. be it would be a little while. We also have uh, nowhere near would, enough money to pay right. him. But also, but. He, would, he would immediately be angry. Um, he alienates everybody. So fast. Yeah, people would be angry with him too. It's not a it's not him alone. Uh, it's a two way street. Yeah, he alienates everybody, and for good reason. But uh, Loco Bielsa, I, I adore him so much. Uh, that's it for this week. Thank you all for listening. Find us at blackandredunited.com. We're on Twitter at filibusterdcu for the podcast, at blackandredu for the website. Send your emails. That includes fanfic. That includes uh, uh, love letters. It includes hate mail. Of course, it includes advertising inquiry. Send them all to filibusterpodcast at gmail.com. We're on iTunes. We're on Stitcher. We're on SoundCloud. Uh, when you are commiserating the season, watching the U.S. national team or MLS Cup, uh, be sure to mention us to your friends because word of mouth is really how the word gets out. For Jason and Ben, I'm Adam. We'll talk to you real soon. Say goodbye, Jason. Goodbye, Jason. <laughs>